You listening, guys? Gotta dig into the study. I can't even record a TikTok of me getting fired, so. Cece! Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode seven of Barside. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about today. So, uh, Cece, why don't you kick us off? There's a story about a employee who recorded herself getting laid off. What's that all about? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the new trend, right, is recording your layoffs. I feel like these are the most popular TikToks that I've seen lately, which is either like recording the actual Zoom of someone letting everyone go or recording themselves as they do it. And the first time I saw these, I was actually pretty shocked because given the what is called professionalism, um, what my parents taught me, all of that, I was like, oh, my God, this is like this is a breach of professionalism. But as I thought about it more, it's also great for transparency. But this um, employee, she works at Cloudflare. She filmed and uploaded a TikTok of herself getting laid off. Uh, her TikTok username is Brittany Peach. And basically, an HR executive and, and a director she never met joined the call. They aren't shown on the videos. They're just heard, which is probably actually like the right way to do it privacy-wise. So good, good on you, Brittany Peach. But they tell her that they evaluated like the 2023 period. She didn't meet expectations. And Cloudflare has decided to part ways with her. And that's when she cuts in. She like interrupts the people essentially firing her to say that she only joined the company end of August. It's been like a three month ramp up period. Part of that was like the holidays. So she doesn't understand what is happening. And I think what was interesting about this is that we hear about stealth layoffs at big law firms all the time. In fact, like I've had friends and also interviewees who've come and talked to me about how under the guise of performance, they were essentially escorted out of the firm, right? And I mean, some of these people are pissed and some of them are willing to fight back and some of them are less willing to fight back. And I actually do see it a lot more across generational divides. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And to touch on some points from this, like you, sales, she was in sales. Mm -hmm. She was in sales. I mean, Alex, you know this too. Like the sales cycle is so long on these deals. Like you can't three. What she was there for three months, four. How long? She, she. That's not enough. That's not enough time to show performance. But like, come on. Here's my per my perspective as a salesperson. I think it depends on what she was selling, and there is a broader philosophy in sales hiring of let's hire as many account executives as possible, throw them against the wall and see who does well, and the ones who don't, we just like let them go. Which is so different than in law, where there's a lot of energy and effort put into recruiting associates, you know, people do invest in their people. And so, you know, I wonder if what happened to her is just Cloudflare was like, we just hired a bunch of people, threw them against the wall, and you know, most people didn't stick. I don't know. It could be. The other thing, related, unrelated, is I... And we've all been in tech-facing roles, so we've seen this, like, at the start of, like, the tech boom, there was this rise of these TikToks and reels of, like, watch me go to work, look at my new tech job, and now it's full circle. I think, I, did you guys see, uh, there was a person filming themselves getting laid off from Discord? Mm-hmm. You saw, yeah, so like it was two, someone had taken, I think she might've done it, which was awesome. Two videos, like get ready with me, maybe my first day or my first couple of days of Discord and then watch me get fired from Discord. And I we finally got the full circle of the TikTok. And um, this is a little different. This is obviously a little bit more serious because this is showing a breakdown in the, the firing process. Like that, it, she should have had a manager there. It should have been done much more professional. It should have been more transparent. But um, 
I do, I, it, it, at least sickly, it's funny because now we finally have the end of those TikToks. We have the watch me lose my job and get ready with me today. And it's just... I think it's really interesting too, like, because it, it, it may be a generational thing. I could not imagine myself doing something like that. And I think, Cece, you said like, I think you had mentioned something about it possibly being generational. Yeah, I think, you know, the generation above millennials, which I think is like Gen X, right? They would definitely not mm. film. Every Gen X is offended by that one. <laughs> the forgotten generation. No, you're right. But they're, okay. like, oh, but even that reaction. <laughs> Every Gen X is like always forgotten. Like the joke is like it's boomers and then millennials, right? Well, if they filmed themselves, if they filmed themselves on TikTok, maybe we wouldn't forget about them. So, <laughs> note to Gen X: You listening, guys? We'll remember. Yeah. So I think Gen X wouldn't film themselves in the first place and probably wouldn't even talk about getting laid off. I remember when I saw my mom get laid off. I mean, not like literally because I wasn't in the room, but when she came home after, it was like the most traumatizing thing I've ever seen. And also that I think has ever happened to her. And she took it so hard, probably did not want to talk about it. It was like so shame ridden. And then of course, I think for millennials, you'll get laid off and then maybe talk about it afterwards. And then I feel like for Gen Z, they just record the meeting where you get laid, laid off. This is such good content, guys. Such good content. Wait, can you can you slow down? Can you say, can you say that last part again? Hold on, um, I, I missed it. The camera like cut out. Like, you do, you could do a boomerang of it. You can create like a how-to guide. You know, when you're getting when you think you're about to get let go, you can create like get your get your camera set up. Make sure like to to pass the privacy requirements. Make sure you don't film the person laying you off. That's so crazy to me that this is a thing. Cece, do you want to work on a white paper together on this? This is not a bad idea. This is good marketing material. Like how to how to record yourself getting laid off. The privacy considerations. <laughs> It's like, here is your step-by-step -step tool to ensuring that the next time you record your layoff and post it, you are safe. Actually, I totally would do something like that. Um, I did kind of advise a client on how to talk about her layoff afterwards and, you know, look at communications related to that. So it's definitely uh, something I'm interested in is like how to properly talk about corporate spaces because it's historically really daunting to do so I'm, I'm changing my um my law firm bio from i'm gonna add like like ai deep fake defense work um lawyer malpractice for using ai defense and then like advising on filming a tiktok about getting fired those are my three new big practice areas guys check out my goals plc plug to myself um there we go man every firm has its own i think focus and so if you're creator focused yeah you gotta solve these problems and um, but you know, a lot of firms serve large companies and this brings me to our next headline, which is super interesting that, um, CC, I know that we had talked about David Latt's Substack that we both read, uh, which is great by the way. Um, he highlighted a study of AMLAW 100 firms, uh, political leanings or, or something like that. Right. Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah. So uh, this was David Latt's Substack and he talked about a study by this University of Notre Dame law professor, Derek Muller. Uh, this was published in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, which by the way, if anyone has gone to Harvard, they know that that is like historically the conservative leaning journal. So 
Yeah, it's like where, you know, if you're in FedSoc, it is where they tell you to join the journal on because it kind of is like a really close relationship between FedSoc and the JLPP. So I thought it was also interesting that they published it in the JLPP and like didn't really talk about the context of what that meant. But it is like a conservative leaning journal. Um, but yeah, so this study and I think given the context of the journal, it's a little bit like, oh, is it just like a conservative conservative journal complaining a little bit about how liberal big law firms have gotten. So Mueller reviewed pro bono amicus briefs or what he thought were likely pro bono amicus briefs because he thought like, you know, if a firm is putting efforts towards spending time on an amicus brief there, then it probably does show a little bit about like what they want their name on, like what they're backing in a political sense. So he found that in this four-year period, out of 851 briefs in total, 64% supported the liberal position, 31% supported the conservative position, and 5% supported neither side. Wow. That's... I am... My preconceived notions are coming out. I thought it would be much more conservative-leaning, given that, right, like, generally speaking, your big law, you're representing bigger corporations, or if it's an amicus brief, maybe bigger associations of, you know, with corporate interests in mind. What... Humor, humor me here. What was Jones Day? I'm not talking shit about Jones Day. If you work at Jones Day, we're, we're all cool here. I, just, I was curious, just curious. So Jones Day is a little bit more conservative. So a majority of its briefs, 52% came in on the liberal side. So it's still majority liberal, but it's more of an even split. Alex, what did you think? I, I would have guessed 80 percent plus i because I, I read this i read this book right uh servants of the damned and it walks through the entire history of jones day uh it's a really great book right but you could see that it while there are pockets of liberal leaning lawyers there it's made it seem like everyone there is conservative so this is surprising i'd love to hear your insight on this because i'm i'm not i've done sub appellate work um i'm not actively marketing for appellate work to say that um what would be why why are these briefs filed pro bono why why are they doing this work for free is it prestige is it an, an understanding you'll get future work maybe from an association or from the individuals like what's the what's the logic i think a lot of it has to do with prestige but also a huge part of it is recognizing that a lot of the associates don't necessarily come into the law hoping to defend a lot of major corporations. So you really, really sell your pro bono practice as a way for them to, you know, be their Atticus Finch selves, like live out their Clarence, um, no, no, not Clarence Thomas. Cece! I know. I was like, other Clarence. Yeah, they're like Clarence Darrow dreams. And that's just, so I, I'm actually not surprised that a lot of the pro bono work is liberal leaning because it's this, interesting way to treat pro bono as a palate cleanser for the rest of the work that you necessarily have to do for clients. That's interesting. I didn't even think about that side, but I always thought it was, I was like, I assumed it was prestige, of course, because it's like, I'm sure that's a stat that people will hype up. But I, I was always curious if it was some sort of like, we do, we did all these amici or we represent all these amicus, amici? Is this, am I speaking correctly? Am, amicus, amicus just sounds aggressive. It's, it's like you're giving amicuses. That sounds that sounds like a, a, a lawsuit waiting to happen. But it's um, I just assumed you would use that maybe to market 
paying appellate work? Like, oh, we've gone to the Supreme Court in what capacity? Oh, we've represented all of these associations or these interested parties as amicus in front of the court. God, I'm never going to... So, all the appellate lawyers on Twitter are going to fight me on this one. Um, I look forward to it. But I was always curious about that. I never got a really good answer. I also don't know uh, why... Yeah, why, I don't know if it's a business development exercise. Uh, I don't know why I see the world in sales. So everything I see is like, I, I assume it's sales, but... But I, I think CC Grace is a great point. Like if you joined a firm and you're defending big corporations and, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to do something different uh, that you can position internally as a professional development ex- exercise while raising the elevating the profile of the firm. Yeah, then you choose what you feel is, quote unquote, right. And so maybe for many of these lawyers, it is something more liberal leaning. I'm just like completely speculating now. I will also say that. I think conservative organizations tend to be a bit better funded overall, so they can actually just go out and get paid lawyers, whereas a lot of progressive causes do not have the same cash (laughs) reserves and do rely on the pro bono work of lawyers to help them out. That makes sense. That, That also makes sense. I, again, I can't, this is slightly left field, but still related, I think. In the, what is it, the Netscape case, the um, the one per- currently pending in front of the Supreme Court, I just saw an amicus brief filed, and it was in the form of a short story. I don't know if you guys saw this. No. You see it, CC? I didn't, but I know that there are some, uh, I, I've seen some pretty wonky amicus like briefs. Like the Onion's a good one. Yeah. Um, it was like in the form of a short story and like about a pilot, and I haven't fully read it yet, but like... I, I'm so confused on the amicus process and I've, and I've represented an amicus, at least in the state like appellate courts, but like, I'm always confused because I feel like sometimes I see like big law representing a, a very, you know, reputable, well-known association or in, a group of individuals. And it's a super detailed brief. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it's like, I'm going to play this song for you in brief format. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. What is? Are you a friend of the court? Or are you a foe? I don't understand what's happening. So I, I really need to brush up on my my uh, my appellate practice. Do, do we know what the reason is for this like creative medium? Like why why do people file uh, amicus briefs in these formats? Like do any of you know? I don't know if actually like any major firm has, but I do know that one of the art collectives in Brooklyn <laughs> filed something that was like uh, I, I think it was the trademark and parody case that was decided by the Supreme Court last year. But this Brooklyn Artist Collective, their amicus brief was just like, they sent colored pencils and then they sent... Oh, was it a coloring book? It, was, it wasn't It was a coloring book, but it was uh, like connect the lines, like one, two, three, four. And then if you connected the lines, it was like each of the justices holding some sort of like brand. And they actually had a file for leave to send the colored pencils because that's not like a normal thing that you send. We are such an unserious profession. <laughs> Mostly trademark. Trademark and IP. I've said this before on the internet. I will stand by it. It is an unserious. I love it though. It's great, but very unserious. It's because it's way more about art. Like, I think that's why it's my favorite. It's like, yeah, maybe we should be a little bit more unserious. And... I do think these types of cases tend to attract the more creative briefs, which honestly, if they didn't, I'd be a little bit disappointed. Like, what are we talking about then? Yeah. Like, look at The Onion. The Onion's brief was very well taken and it like was in the tone of The Onion. Like it, and it, and it certainly made a lot of sense. Um, 
and again, I say that with I say that with much love, the unseriousness of the of that, because I'm I'm a corporate litigator, so like, what's serious about two businesses that don't like each other? It's not that serious. <laughs> it's really not. <laughs> I also think there is a. PR perspective of now filing an amicus because people will like talk about interesting amicus briefs. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to like why a firm might have, you know, again, for a business development perspective, why they might want to take certain sides. And, and by the way, going back to the study, CC, like, did you notice any um, interesting trends or surprises? I mean, there was Jones Day that that seems, you know, seems surprising, the result that it's, you know, only 52% of its briefs um, were conservative. But is there, uh, were there any other surprises in the in the study that you saw? I think so. So I know about Gibson Dunn as also a fairly conservative firm, and they actually just totally fit the norm, which was 64% on the liberal side, which was like pretty much just the all AMLAW 100 big law figure. How are they defining liberal and conservative? I have a lot of questions about this. Got to dig into the study, Matt. I, I got to get into I got to get into the sauce of this one. I don't and this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, again, I, I don't know. I'm sure it's completely it's what I would believe liberal to be and what I believe conservative to be. But I mean, I just I would just to your point, CC, I would assume Gibson Dunn is like 100 percent conservative or like like that's not true. like 80 percent probably. It's so fascinating to me that we have already ideas of brands of firms just based on what people we know who went to work there or what high profile matters that might represent some fraction of a percent of their entire matters. Um, And it's like this brand has such a huge impact. And then that's why whenever something happens to a firm in the news, it's like such a huge deal because people remember these things. And this reminds me of the the third story we want to talk about today, which has to do with a lawsuit against a big law firm filed by a former associate, which Matt, I know you are familiar with. So why don't you tell us about it and we can, yeah, talk about it. Yeah. So this is an associate in a transactional practice. I want to, I want to say at some point was in the multifamily transactional practice and it most, again, transactional is, is the key here. So this associate is alleging uh, racial discrimination against the firm and is saying that uh, there's a, there's a more or less there's a number of acti- you know incidents throughout this but effectively towards the end of their tenure at this firm dealing with a very toxic boss um, getting treated differently than other associates apparently this associate was not invited to certain trainings um, and excluded from certain things and then eventually they were let go and their reviews were stunning um, and then their final review, which came out just after I believe they were terminated, was a pretty good review. It was a pretty good review. And then throughout, but throughout this complaint, even outside of the discrimination allegations, it, it reads, it, it, people are, are reading it. They're like, this is really strange. So one part of it I really want to talk about is this billing thing. Okay. So early in the complaint, this associate was working for an attorney and that attorney had said, do not put your billing into our system. And if you're listening, you don't know how you bill in private practice. You have a, a uh, billing um, software. Maybe it's through your practice management software. Maybe it's not. But you put your bills in, and then it spits out something called a pre-bill, which your partner is going to review, mark up, send back, make changes, whatever. They make it into a final bill, send it to the client, done. Not the case here. That particular attorney said, you need to email me your time. What? That reaction is exactly what I did. I was like, this isn't, 
this isn't right. So um, this associate was billing their time via email to the partner. And I believe accounting or whatever department within that firm was like, you don't really have any time in. Um, are you just like not productive? I just like push my computer off because of, because of the sheer force of that, of the accounting department in my brain. You, they're like, you don't really have any time in. And I know there's back and forth with the partner and uh, the partner's like, oh, well, some of the time that you're doing is billable and I'm, and I'm addressing it. And, and, and online, everyone was trying to figure out why, what would it, what would be? I've heard speculation. I don't know if I disagree with this, that it was potentially to keep the realization rate at, at a certain number, right? So like, you don't, no one sees those cuts. You just think that that attorney is billing X, whatever they're billing, and no cuts have ever been recognized in, in the billing software, um, which I would imagine you get reprimanded if you're cutting someone's bill too hard. Um, but I mean, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on that piece in particular, because that was so strange to me. I, I just couldn't... The part of the story, like you, as an associate, are not billing your time, you're sending it to a partner who's then putting it in. And the only person, apparently, who was doing that, by the way. Allegedly, it was the only associate. Allegedly. But... Um... I don't know. Can you all, do you all both know who, why, why realization matters? Cause I don't understand why that needs to be managed. There's, I'm, I'm sure there's a business reason, maybe like optimizing business performance, but like, why is that a reason to, to have an associate send a partner, um, their hours? Because then you don't have to write off the amounts on the back end, which then is tracked. And then we'll probably go into your performance report for, how much of the profits you get that year oh for the for the partner mm -hmm. yeah so partners will get well it depends on the firm but it, it was actually one of the things i really liked about my first firm is that it didn't really seem like they cared about writing off time and i thought that was actually a really great environment to like, get trained in because you could just like right. follow your intellectual uh, intuition and just like wherever you wanted to go, you could just like do that. And if the partner was like, mm, you spent a lot of time on this, but I'll just write it off. And they would just do it. And it was like, great. Whereas going to a firm that really did care about realization, I actually, for the first few, I don't know, six months, I think I actually probably spent too much time on things and had to have a talking to where they were like, you know what? You just like, shouldn't be trying to do the Rolls Royce or the Cadillac when like a Honda will do. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. I just... A Honda? Not even something like mid-level? <laughs> We're going straight to the Honda? <laughs> this is big law. <laughs> I think they were just like, keep in mind what the... I don't know what the client really is paying and willing to pay for this. And that was just like a whole new thing I had never really thought about before. But it was because if they cut billable hours if they like wrote it off then that appeared in their report and then when it came to like profit distribution reviews they just weren't seen as efficient internally it matters because it, it it makes an impact on how much of the profits you get to share so you're not screwing the client but you're screwing everyone else in the firm that's that's more or less the mindset behind it yeah you're screwing your partners um and that's what i've i've seen speculated other folks are just just more baffled by it like what it's either the intent was that, or the, if this, again, I, if this is true, this is a complaint. These are allegations. I do not know if any of this is true. We are speculating based on what is being alleged. If what is being alleged is true, I would assume that might be it. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's an, a nefarious thing, but I mean. But why her? Why right. only her? Like, then it should be 
all the junior associates or something or like, you know, one, yeah, all of them at the same time, because I think they're the most likely to spend too much time on things. So if you're trying to manage that, then do it for the entire class. But this like, why her is going to bother me. Whenever I see these lawsuits, and this is certainly not the first one, you always have to ca caution yourself by saying, these are just allegations, right? But there is a reaction I have that I don't know if everyone shares, which is, I don't know who's telling the truth, so I'm going to look to my personal experience, having worked at some of these places, and I'm gonna compare it. Does this look relatable, or does this seem kind of crazy? Are there other factors that I've seen that are unspoken, right, in both directions, like whether it's favoring the firm or the associate? And, and I gotta say, like, I think a lot of people are sympathetic to this plaintiff because they've seen similar things at their workplace. And I certainly have too. And like I say, I got to qualify it by saying, yeah, they're allegations. But um, I've seen different treatment of different types of associates. Like back at my old firm, we had an entire floor that was really um, for the litigation department. And it was really like not the cool assignments. It was the doc review. It was like the, the grunt work. And I will tell you, it was filled with like women and minorities, essentially. Um, and all the on the other floor where the associates would be seated close to the partners in power, you know, the ones on management committees and with clout and getting the plum assignments, they all looked the same. They were all white men. And so, you know, you could say like, yeah, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, there could be, you know, business related reasons. I don't know what they might be, but like th there was a clear pattern. It was a clear pattern. And it wasn't even, a, you know, you could see like there were the people on the on my on my floor were all from like you know very really top schools and you know you couldn't tell from the resume that there were any different so like i'm not saying anything was happening there but i think that when you see things like that and then you read these allegations you can draw upon your personal experience and have a reaction to it which tying back to my original point about branding is like these things make up a firm's brand these little feelings of like you know was there were there allegations of this or you know what was your experience working there and and people talk and so i think that's why the brands matter so much to these firms who otherwise cannot market themselves or do damage control because firms are not supposed to talk about this stuff that's a really good point you were also you just kind of gave me like the the perfect juror analysis like there are these situations where you could tell the perfect i listen this is my experience as being starting my career as a defense attorney giving defense, civil defense. I'm, I'm not a criminal defense attorney. And giving your side of the story to a corporation, to a business, to something that doesn't have a face necessarily. And to your point, if you cannot personify, you cannot have a, you cannot provide a, a face that's relatable that you can, that resonates with you uh, as your corporate representative, sometimes the jury's just like, or whoever you're dealing with, even the judge is going to say like, I know from my experience that th this this feels like this could happen. I tend to believe the plaintiff over the defendant in this case and vice versa, obviously. And it's funny you bring that up because that's exactly, that's the mindset. Like if you cannot present a brand for your client that's, that jives with your story, the jury is just going to, or the general public is going to say, I believe the other side, regardless of, of whatever you have to say. Yeah, I think it makes jury selection then really important because on the other hand, you could just have a jury that's like, I don't know, I think she's lying, right? That's exactly right. And we have seen instances, right, um, where there, I mean, all of the 
I think the discrimination lawsuits in Silicon Valley in like the early 2010s, I think anyone who has worked in those environments like read about them and were like, no, this sounds right. And we're actually pretty shocked when the outcomes were the way that they were, where they like, you know, these uh, women filing discrimination lawsuits just like got their reputation slandered, basically, you know, got outed and then uh, didn't get anything from the trial as well. And I think that's completely possible as well, because when it's like left to your subjective opinion about everything, a lot of it is just like, do I think this is believable from my perspective and my history, or do I think they're just lying? Exactly right. It's exactly right. Yeah, I, I think also this is true of not just us as commentators, but true of judges too like they're going to draw upon their own background and what they've seen right and you could imagine um if a judge comes up from an employment defense background they may have seen a lot of bad lawsuits with you know no real merit to them and that may color their worldview just as you know my own experiences um growing up in you know like as an as a child of immigrants you know i have i have a unique perspective too and we all do and i think that's why like you know generally speaking people are very much for improving the diversity of the bench because at the end of the day i think this is a human reaction to draw upon your own experience even if it's not representative like and and to to interpret these ambiguous situations that's listen as as an, a, a litigator like that's what i provide to my client with an analysis of the case i say this is so and so judge this is their background this is what they did prior to, to getting on the bench and that's to your point that's a highly highly important things because if especially in a county and you know in your theory if all the judges were all prosecutors were all right and they all had similar backgrounds they all came up um, in the same kind of office like chances are you're going to get very similar outcomes from depending on the clients that you're representing. Not to say judges are biased. I'm not, I'm not, if, if I'm in front of you and you were a judge, we're, we're good. We're all friends here. No problem. <laughs> um, but yeah, to your point, I, I, I certainly agree. I think the crazier thing that I'm just reading about is that despite being left out of associate trainings, she was consistently asked to attend DEI events such as like etiquette dinner at Howard University Law School just two weeks before her firing. And it's like, this is one of those moments, Alex, where I agree. And I'm like, oh no, this this totally happens where like you just become the token diverse associate and you have to do all these like recruiting things that for a long while weren't even billable. So you just had to do it out of the goodness of your heart at the expense of working on billable things or working on like external client development stuff. So you can make the firm internally a better place. And this is actually one divide I've um, talked to a partner about, which is that she was saying that when they look at, uh, you know, put, putting people up for partner, she generally sees that white men tend to have the same non-billable hours and stuff, but it's always through like external things like writing articles, like, you know, really raising their profile. Whereas the women and minorities, their non-billables tend to be more internally trying to make the firm a better place. But of course, what counts more for becoming partner? It's definitely the outward facing external stuff. Like they care way less about the internal things. They want you to generate money. And it's like this devious parallel track um, that you're kind of on one or the other. And if you don't realize that this track is not going to lead you to where you want to go, it's very easy to want to give back and want to spend all your time 
helping other people like you while also maybe not doing as much as you could on the like professional development side. Wasn't that a scene in like partner track? Was it right? Where, where it was I th- I, right. Am I crazy? Where the lead character had to go to an event and they basically, it was the same thing. They basically propped yes. her. Yeah. 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 And she received an award. Yes. And that, and listen, as like a white guy, that's it's, it's, I'm going to be straight up. It's so foreign to me. It is so foreign to me because it's like, and it makes complete sense to utilize and to and to promote that you're doing these things that we are so um, we are promoting folks from different backgrounds and we are elevating them at the firm, but also using it as a shield, um, right? I'm going to send you to this event. We we cannot possibly be discriminating against anybody. And sending and look at all of our policies. It's what it's it's a corporate DEI. We have all these policies. When it's in the same toe, if you bring it up, you're like, no, no, we we couldn't have possibly we couldn't have possibly done it. No, 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 no. You, you went to that event last week. Remember? We're good. We're fine. And that's, it's kind of what it reminds me of. And again, like, I don't want to speak out of turn because I am a white guy. Um, and, but that's at least what it looks like outside looking in. I think, you know, brand management for firms, there are some activities that benefit the firm at the expense of the individual. Uh, and, and there are others that benefit the firm and the individual. And you can probably guess based on personal experience and anecdotes, um, who falls into what? type of activity. Like, um, if you're being sent to these uh, DEI types of events, affinity events, um, that may be managing the firm's brand at the expense of your own career. And that's a very sad commentary. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a, this is an interesting case and I think we'll be watching it. And I think this Reuters article that I read about it said that it's happening in the context of other lawsuits against big law. Uh, and I can imagine a lot of people don't want to file lawsuits against big law. And so it's interesting that now we've reached the point where people are going to trial against these large firms. I mean, that's, it's, it's such a crazy concept for me because you're going against the lawyers, like the, you're like the lawyers, like you're going to, I would hire them to defend me in this kind of case. Like this is like, it is, you got to give, you got to give the people that are filing these lawsuits, whether you believe the allegations or not, you have to give them the respect they're entitled to, because that is a big step. It is, it is frightening as all fucking hell. Um, and it takes a lot to fucking do that. Sorry for cursing so much. I don't care. I'm going to fucking curse. It's, it takes a lot to, it takes a lot to do that. So like, again, you could believe it or not, but to have the actual, I'm going to do this. I'm going against one of the biggest freaking law firms in the U S and the world. I'm doing it. I mean, you gotta respect it. Yep. I can't even record a TikTok of me getting fired. So I couldn't <laughs> sue a big law firm. Full circle, CC. There we go. <laughs> well, uh, I think we're out of time for this week, but um, thanks, y'all, for tuning in. Um, more to come in the next episode. Bye. See y'all. Bye.